Revelation chapter 1, let's begin in verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His, hair, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a, a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Let's pray together. Father, we are so much looking forward to being able to dive into your word and to study it. And we've, we know, Lord, it's not just an exercise in intellect, intellect or anything else. It's, it's communing with you. It's, it's worshiping you. It's ex- engaging you, experiencing you, Lord. And we want to experience you and worship you in, in the context of studying your word. So we pray that your spirit would brood upon us, that he would empower us, that he would illuminate Uh, our hearts to your word. We're thankful that your word is already powerful. We never have to pray for it to be powerful, Lord. We thank you that um, you want to give our hearts uh, the ability to receive your word, and that's what we ask for now. And we commit this time to you. We ask that you set it aside for your holy use. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Last week we began looking at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, an event that's quite different and distinct from the rapture. The rapture is when he descends, doesn't come to earth, and snatches us away to be with him. But the second coming is when he physically comes back to earth, touches his feet down on the Mount of Olives, and starts the millennial reign there. I want to read verses 7 and 8 of the same chapter, reviewing his second coming. He said, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So he is physically coming back to this earth. It is going to happen. 
It is as sure as anything in this life or above this life or beyond this life can be. It's going to happen. There are more prophecies related to his second coming than ever were related to his first coming. And he fulfilled the prophecies related to his first coming flawlessly, perfectly, and on time. But now this week we're going to see the Lord Jesus appear to the Apostle John. He begins in verse 9 by saying, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island which is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I love how John begins with humility. He says, John, both your brother and companion. Now, John could have easily begun with, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. That wouldn't have been inappropriate. It wouldn't have been prideful. It wouldn't have been presumptuous for sure. It would, but he was coming and writing as a brother and as a companion. And what I notice here in this verse is that it, he was a brother and companion along with these churches that were going through difficulty. So he says, I know what you're going through. I know persecution is increasing. I'm here where I'm at right now because of persecution. And I'm your companion. I'm your brother. I know what it's like to go through what you're going through there. And so he doesn't throw his weight around. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, lord his, his calling or his title over them. But he focuses on their needs. And he focuses on what they're going through so they can relate to what he has to say. How many of us know that someone can hear a message from us much better when they know our heart and know how much we care about them and that we can empathize with them? They can much better receive those things than if they don't have any of that. So he says, in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. That's something very specific there. He's talking about difficulty and persecution. And he doesn't say of Rome. Did you notice that? He says of Jesus Christ. This what you're going through and what I'm going through, what I'm a partner in you with is something that's of Christ. That he's allowed this. And he gives us strength to do and to stand and to withstand all that he's called us to in this life. And he says, so I'm standing with you. And then he says uh, that he's on this island called Patmos. Now, uh, the closest thing that we have in what we're used to or what we're used to being around is Alcatraz. Any of you been to Alcatraz? How many of you been to Alcatraz? Wow, that's a lot. Hopefully you weren't there for any other reason besides, you know, visiting. Um, but uh, th- this would be kind of the same idea. Patmos was just a rock in the middle of the Aegean Sea there. And it was quite a bit bigger than uh, Alcatraz. It was 10 miles long and 5 miles wide. And it was about 50 miles away from Ephesus and so forth. And so there's a reason why he was there. He gives us in the verse. He says, for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. The history of John was that he was in Ephesus serving. And then he was incarcerated, brought to Rome. And uh, under Domitian, they attempted to boil him in oil he supernaturally survived that, and then, the, then they sent him away. Well, I can't, you know, burn him in oil or whatever. I'm just going to isolate him and sequester him away from all, every influence. There was no internet on Patmos. There was no way for him to write letters. There was no post office. You know, he was sequestered far away. And, and so here he is at the end of his life and in very rough conditions. John's in his 90s now. The average life expectancy was 45 years at this time. He's already doubled that. And, and so all the other disciples are dead. All, they're all gone on to be with the Lord. He's the last surviving apostle there. And the conditions on Patmos were horrific. 
You had to sleep on the floor. Uh, you you had, were constantly um, chained and so forth. You had insufficient food and so forth. It was dark. There was a military officer that was there. They had quarries there where you would have to work and so forth. He wasn't completely, we always picture him by himself and, and completely without anyone else on that island, and that wasn't the case. There were other people supervising his incarceration there, but of course they weren't you know, believers probably, and so very, very difficult. And so they were trying to make the Apostle John forgotten. That's what the enemy tells us. When he tries to get us sequestered away and he gets us isolated, people don't care about you. Phone hasn't rang. No one's texted you, texted you. They haven't noticed you haven't been among his, God's people for a long time. They don't care. The enemy loves to isolate us. Now, it's easy for us to look at this and go, John's on this island and you know, he's writing this letter. We have to think about and remember that he's a real person with real feelings, even though he's walked with the Lord for decades and decades, 60 years since the Lord had, had, had uh, ascended, somewhere around there. So he was, he was a real person. He was sequestered away. And, and you, could, you could think that he was probably, at times, I mean, he's a human. He had struggles, just like all of us. And he could probably think, as we do sometimes, you know, what good can possibly come of this? You ever been in a situation where you think that? Lord, you've allowed this. What possible good reason could you have for putting me in this situation? If you're in that situation this morning, we can relate to the Apostle John here. Because he's on this island, how could he be a blessing to anybody? But, but God had a specific purpose for him. And usually, in the darkest of times, it seems like God loves just to show up. Darkest of times. Look at the first coming of the Lord Jesus. That God hadn't spoke officially for 400 years. And that the nation was dark. Everybody thought, okay, what, God is not dealing with this anymore. There's, there's confusion and, and, and kind of like wandering and so forth. And then God comes and he fulfills prophecy and Jesus comes. Same type of thing in our lives. There's times where it's so dark, so discouraging, and then God comes in and supernaturally compensates. And he's so faithful to do that. Now he says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. So he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So he's communing with the Lord. They can put me on the island of Patmos, 50 miles away from where I'm from, but that doesn't mean that the Lord's not there. And I can commune with him. It reminds me of Paul and Silas in prison. And they're worshiping. And, and, and it's around midnight and so forth. And, and, and they're worshiping God. They're in a prison. But God starts tapping his foot to the worship. And there's an earthquake and so forth. And they're released. I mean, no matter where we go, God is there. He's there to minister to us. And, and so he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Likely, this is talking about Sunday. Because this is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so likely it was Sunday. We don't know for sure. But I mean, every day is his day. He owns everything. But he's there. He's, he's worshiping. And it says that I heard behind me a loud voice. So what's interesting about the, the, those two words, loud voice, it's loud is the word mega and voice is the word phone. So it's like, help you understand. Okay, that's literally what the words are in Greek. Megaphone. I heard a megaphone. You know, he's behind him just blaring, and I'm sure he heard the Lord Jesus' voice be soft many times during the Lord Jesus' public ministry. This is an entirely different encounter. He blasts him. I remember when I was in high school. Oh, here we go. But, um, you know, you're in high school, and music is so important to you when you're in high school. You just, I mean, some of us, it's, it was the Beatles. Some of us was, you know, I don't know, um, the Rolling Stones. I don't know. For me, it was 
breakdancing music, okay? So I'm listening to, you know, and I'm cranking it up so loud. And my, my half-brother was living with us at the time, and I just drove him nuts. And he just kept turning things up louder. And so I would turn up things louder to meet his, you know, and it's just louder and louder. And, and so it's just so obnoxious when you're trying to focus on something and noise just comes in so loud and just in, in, invades your, your mind. You know, here the Lord Jesus comes with a loud voice as of a trumpet. Trumpets are loud. I mean, when they're really close to you, you don't want to put your ear right up to the trumpet. You know, can I hear the ocean in here? You know, uh, right before someone starts playing, I mean, it'll blow your eardrums out. So he says, that voice came, and look what he said in verse 11, saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And he, and he lists the cities there. And we'll get into that in chapters 2 and 3. So here he's saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I'm the first and the last. And he, he reminds John, and this isn't the last time John will be reminded to write down what he's writing. And you can imagine seeing something amazing and you're supposed to be recording it. Just, just picture that. You've been assigned to record something amazing that you're watching. It's easy to forget, right? You're looking at it. You're amazed by it. And, and, and he's having to be reminded this is going to happen in the future too or the John, write this down. You're supposed to be writing this down. Remember? Oh, yeah, that's right. I need to get back to what I'm, I'm supposed to be doing. But John, next here, is going to be the recipient of a revelation of Jesus himself, describing the Lord's appearance. And what's interesting is that in the Gospels, we're never given a description of the Lord Jesus' appearance. And that's by design. There's all, you, can, you can think about all the reasons why God may not have led them to do that. We would think that a certain type of look would be more spiritual or whatever. It was very purposeful. Now, Isaiah gave us, gave us a description that there's nothing about his appearance that we should desire him. So we do know that it, there wasn't anything substantial about his appearance. Uh, but, but here, uh, we're given a, a description. You know, you, you would think of the, the Gospels, when you read through the Gospels, why didn't they do that? You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, why didn't you describe just a little bit of, of what his, his appearance was? But here we get to see a very clear picture. And remember, revelation means unveiling. It means unveiling. So God wants us to be clearly seeing what he wants us to see. And the revelation is not the revelation of the end times. It's not the revelation of the end of the world, the judgment of this world. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ himself. So it's very fitting that there's going to be a revelation of his person, of what he looks like at this time when he appears to the apostle John. And so we get to see that. And the first thing we see is he's talking about seven golden lampstands. And what's interesting, when we look at some of these things, a lot of them have references to the Old Testament, where, the, again, the Jewish readers, Jewish believers would understand what they're talking about when, there's, when this, these symbols are used and what this, when this description is, is given to them. So he says um, that I, having turned... I saw seven golden lampstands. So that reminds us of a menorah, you know, the Jewish menorah there. And God told Moses to form that for the uh, tabernacles because it was dark in there and they needed to be able to see. And so Moses was instructed to, to make that. And so the difference between a menorah and what he's talking about here is a menorah is a lampstand with seven branches. Remember, seven significant. Remember, 
54 times in the book of Revelation, the, word, the number seven is used. It's talking about fulfillment or fullness of something. And so uh, back then, that menorah was to communicate the fullness of Israel and all, of this, all the, that represented to this world and being salt and light in this world and so forth. But now he's talking about seven separate lampstands. He's not talking about one lampstand with seven lamps, so to speak. He's talking about seven different lampstands. And he interprets it for us in verse 20. Let's look down at verse 20. God gives us plainly what what those are. In the middle of, of verse 20, he says, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Again, Scripture interprets Scripture. That's one of the Bible interpretation principles we went over. Scripture interprets Scripture. So these seven churches are the seven lampstands. And so here's the picture again. Um, you know, the, the, the um, seven churches represent the fullness of the church. There's nothing really we need to hear apart, of course, from you know, the other parts of Scripture. But what God's going to reveal to us in chapters 2 and 3, what he says to those seven churches... That really sums up the totality of what he would want to say to us in a, that, that's beyond what the rest of the scripture says. And sometimes people believe that, that the, these seven churches are like historical churches. And, you know, I don't, that doesn't always fit perfectly, so I don't really focus on that a lot. But the point is, is that the fullness of these churches are represented here. The fullness of the church. Because one nation was witnessing to the world related to the menorah. But now, that's, there's been multiplication. It's, there's seven times that influence now with the seven churches representing the fullness or the completion of the witness of the church. So we are the light of the world. We are representing the fullness to uh, this world of what God intends for mankind. We are the light of the world. We are a city set on a hill. We are the salt of the earth. And so that's why he says these seven churches, that's what's represented by these seven lampstands. Now, Jesus in the midst, look with me in verse 13. He says, And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with the garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Jesus here reveals that he is in the midst of his church. When we think about gathering as believers, the most amazing part about that fact is that Jesus is in our midst. What do we come to church for? We come because of the word. We come to grow. We come to all these things. Ultimately, it's for him. Ultimately, it's to worship him because he is in our midst. He literally is here right now in our midst. Jesus is here. It's not just hyperbole or symbolism. He is here. Two or three are gathered in my name. I am there in the midst of them. And so we have to think, realize that he is in our midst. He attends to every service. He enjoys every song. At least that's the hope. He knows every song. He knows what passage we're studying. He knows how he's ministering through his word by his spirit in the lives of people, quite apart from anything the teacher says many times. Amen. Can I get amen about that? Uh, and, and he is ministering. He is walking these aisles. He is ministering. We can't see him, but he's ministering in our midst and he wants freedom to move how he wants to move we we prepare all week for this 
so that we can be flexible enough to let him have his way so that he can interrupt things. He, he adds things when I'm teaching. He sometimes takes away. He changes things up at times. He uses spiritual gifts. I mean, he's always working so that we will be more flexible, so that it's not predictable. Jesus is anything but predictable. Never predictable in the, in the New Testament. He's always working in a different way. He's always throwing the disciples off, doing head fakes in the spirit, you know, where they're just like, what was that? How did he, well, he didn't heal that way this time, but he did it last time this way. He didn't, now he's feeding the 4,000. He already fed the 5,000. He's having a sit in groups now, and he's, it's always healing differently. I mean, he's always wanting that freedom. That's why the first step to being de- a dead church is where he can't move, and he can't change, and he can't minister how he wants to minister so it necessitates all of us to be flexible. Even, he's going to talk to the church of Sardis. And we're going to get into that about how they thought they were alive and, and they thought that they were full of life and his assessment was entirely different than theirs. And that, that shakes us up and shows us Jesus, because he's in the midst, especially because he's in the midst, he's assessing our church. He's assessing his church because he says it's his. He has opinions about things. He has an opinion about my sermon. He has has an opinion about our worship. He has an opinion about everything related to what happens here. And and we should care more about what he thinks than what other people think or what we even uh, think. And so it's exciting to know that. He is ministering in the midst of us. And notice it says he's also clothed specifically. It says, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. And I believe this is being modeled after a revealed... uh, to bring our minds to uh, the, the, the high priest. And how this is very similar to how the high priest was uh, dressed. And Jesus is our high priest. Now, he wasn't according to that priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. He's according to another order. But he, but he still presents himself in this way where it makes us think of a great high priest. And I want to read to you just to remind us about his ministry as high priest in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. We're told this, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So he is our great high priest, and he is there presenting himself as someone that he he wants us to see him as approachable. The last thing he wants is for us to think that we can't approach him in our time of need. That's why he reveals it as a throne of grace. Because when we are weak and we're falling short and we're sinning and so forth, we realize if I, came, if I had to come to a throne room of, of, of judgment or legalism or whatever, I could never approach him. And he knows that. So he's always encouraging us to go to him, go to him, go to him. When we fall, we need to fall towards him. When we fall, we need to go right back to him. Right back, he wants us to go back to him with uh, confidence. And so that, that is a great indication of his high priest ministry. So he also reveals himself as the son of man. That's the Lord Jesus' favorite title for himself in the Gospels. The son of man. To my knowledge, it only appears two other times in the New Testament. And it's direct reference to him being the Messiah. But I also believe that it's referring to him always identifying with mankind and their needs. 
I'm one of you. I know what you're going through. I'm going before you, and, and I know the suffering that you go through. I'm going through suffering and so forth. And so he reveals himself as the Son of Man. Then it says in verse 14, His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. I believe this, is again, is an image taken right from Daniel picture of the ancient of days that's a title of his and just a picture of purity notice that his head and hair not just his hair we always think just white hair when we think of this picture it's his head and hair are white like wool and and he adds those four words as white as snow and he's always describing that related to our righteousness after he cleanses us from all of our sin we are white as snow or whiter than snow and so i believe it's a picture of purity this this description of him and i'm not saying this is symbolism i'm not saying that he's looked differently and 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 he looked this is how he looked but it represents something and because all through the old testament it represented something very specific his eyes were like a flame of fire and you you can imagine the lord jesus looking right at you that's going to happen that's a heavy thing to his Physical eyes are going to be looking right at us. We're going to be at, at the judgment seat of Christ, standing before him alone, giving account for our lives. Hell and heaven, it's all been determined. It's all settled and everything. But this is about explaining and, and revealing, um, or him revealing, all the, everything about our stewardship and why we did what we did and our motivation and were we spirit-directed and all those things. We're going to look at him face-to-face. We're going to look in those eyes. And, and I, they're going to be piercing, but, but they're going to be full of love, too. See, that's the thing. I don't think that this, these eyes like a flame of fire is about harshness or anger or whatever. It's just the fire of who he is, the passion of who he is, and, and just that intense vision that he has. I don't see it as flames coming out of his eye sockets, you know, uh, at all. I think it's a piercing, those piercing eyes there. And, and what an what a amazing picture that we see for him to just look right at John. Remember, John has seen his eyes many times. John had at times laid his head back on his breast during the great, the, during, during the, the, the times when they would eat, when they would recline back. They didn't have chairs. They reclined. I like that. Maybe we should do that sometime. Recline back and eat and so forth. But th- John was very close to the Lord Jesus in, in physical, uh, you know, in, in his physical presence many times. This had never, he'd never seen this. This is all new to him. Then he says in verse 15, his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. His feet are beautiful. And I think of the Gospels when people would fall at his feet. And it was the ultimate sign of worship. That's a, whether you're studying Hebrew or Greek, when you study word worship, it means to, to be prostrate. Almost a something else prostrate you're laid out before him you know and you're at his feet and and so it's a it's a picture of victory it's a picture of um judgment because the the you you, if you go back in the old testament remember they're working off of that knowledge and you go to the they would go to the tabernacle they would offer their their bring their offering they brought it before the brazen altars bronze it was a symbol of judgment there so he he's, has his feet were like fine brass. It doesn't say they were fine brass. He didn't have brass feet. But they were like uh, 
fine brass, like refined in a furnace. And then he says, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And I just think of the oceans, you know, you just picture the Apostle John on that island of Patmos, surrounded by the ocean there and the sea and the waves crashing. He was very familiar with that, with the Sea of Galilee, even though it wasn't an ocean. There was incredible storms at times and so forth. And here he is there, and these, this voice is like the sound of many waters. I want to read a portion of Psalm 29. It's a reference to his voice. It's a Psalm of David. And he says in Psalm 29, Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. And it goes on in that psalm to to mention the waters and the power of the waters and his voice and so forth. And how powerful his voice. I think over 15 times he uses the, the two words, the voice, in describing the voice of the Lord in that psalm. And it's just powerful. And, we, you know, we talk a lot about that still, small voice, like with Elijah. And that's true. God speaks to us with that still, small voice. But there are times where he really, really speaks loud and clear. I remember when I was standing and talking to Sandy at one point, And I was dating another girl. Been dating her for a while. Talking to Sandy. And the Lord said so loudly in my heart and in my mind, you are looking at your wife. <laughs> what? I'm talking and, and I'm, I'm having a conversation with her and I stop in mid-sentence and I, I'm just staring at her. She says, what? And I said, oh, nothing, 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 nothing. You know, it just wasn't any, you know, and I just put it to the side. I'm like, whatever what that was. And I ended up breaking up with that girl like six months later and it just kind of went into, fallen into place. Everything fell into place. But it wasn't a still small voice. And I know this is, this is an external thing. I'm not talking about that John experienced some internal thing. It was, a, you know, Jesus was there, in, in appearing there. But he doesn't have to have, give us an audible voice for us to have that voice be so loud and clear that it's, it's like the power of, a, of, you know, the sound of, of, of many waters. And, and he wants to speak to us. He wants to confirm things to us. You know, we pray for confirmation sometimes, don't we? And we wonder sometimes, Lord, I, want, I don't want to know what your will is. Can you speak to me? And he said, my sheep hear my voice. And I never see through the Old Testament or the New Testament really anyone struggling, or I should say God struggling, to get through to anybody. When God wants to tell somebody something, he can do it. He's, he tells people that don't even want to know his will things at times. Even in the Old Testament, you'll see it. And, he, you know, I mean, think about getting spoken to through the voice of a donkey you know i mean god can use any way that he wants so yes it's fine to pray for confirmation at times but usually we know what he's saying we know we usually we know it there's so many times in counseling where so many times i will say what do you think the lord's what do you think the lord's saying and then they just say it. And that's exactly what I would have said. It's like, well, you know, I mean, I'm just, it's, it's, we hear the voice sometimes, but we don't always want to obey what we are hearing. So it takes someone else to say, yeah, that is the voice of the Lord, to confirm that or whatever. But um, he doesn't struggle to get through to his, to his people. Verse 16. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength 
Now, verse 16 is a verse all about God's power. Everything about that verse is communicating how powerful he is. And notice he says he had in his right hand. It's not by accident he says his right hand. All through the Old Testament, the right hand of the Lord. It's always talking about God's strength. Most people are right-handed. And so the, the whole idea was you're strong with your right hand. That's where your power is. And the Lord used that and would say, I'm going to come through on your behalf with my mighty right hand. So it's the same type of thing here. He had in his right hand seven stars. And he, and he talks about that out of his mouth came a two-edged sword. And there's different words for sword in the New Testament. There's words that talk, describe a little tiny knife. And then there's words for sword that's big, massive, real sword where you're lopping, you know, you know uh, you're in the battle and you're, it's just taking people out. That's the word here, the big sword. That's the word that he's using here out of his mouth and we'll see in Re- later on in revelation when when he speaks a word to the antichrist and and he's wiped out just from a word out of his mouth and then he says his countenance and so he's saying it's like the sun shining in its strength now in the middle east there if you go to jerusalem and in israel and so forth that whole area it, the sun is very bright i mean it's just the way that it's located and how the, the distance of the curvature of the earth or whatever. But in that, in that area, no matter where you are on the globe, the sun is very, very bright. And so he's saying his countenance was so bright. Everything's powerful. His right arm, his strength is powerful. His, his words are powerful. Even his countenance is powerful. Power is interwoven through every part of this verse. But he adds something to it. He talks about these seven stars in his right hand. And again, verse 20 tells us that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now we're going to get into this when we get into these different churches and so forth. But these angels, I believe, are the senior pastors of the churches. Because, or else he'd be talking about angelic beings. And, and there's not an angelic being assigned to every church because he's telling these, he's commending some of these angels of doing certain things and, and telling them that, that they need to do certain things that are completely different than what you would tell an angelic being. So The word angel in Greek means messenger. So he's saying, speak to the singular messenger of the church. And I believe that's the senior pastor or the head elder, so whatever title you want to use. And so he's saying he holds these pastors or leaders of these churches in his right hand. And again, these are all things that communicate. If you want to be consistent, all these things are communicating what he has for power, what he has, what's showing uh, related to power. But, but more than that, I, and this is a great comfort to me as a pastor, because it, sh- it comforts me to know that he's, holding, that, he's, that he's holding me in his right hand. I need him to hold me in his right hand. I need his power. I need his safety. And it's, I, you know, the, that right hand means something to me, because it's his, pow- it's his power holding me in the palm of his hand, and he knows that that's going to affect the rest of of the body. So that verse is very sweet to me. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Now, Jesus touches revealed in verse 17 when he says, "And when I saw him, that is Jesus, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, there's his right hand again, right hand on me, saying to me, "Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last." Now, John had seen the Lord Jesus many times in his public ministry. You never see John falling at his feet as though dead. 
This is an entirely different experience. This is the risen Christ. This is the glorified Christ there. And, and, and so John is afraid. You know, and, and what I like about this is he says, don't be afraid. And, and he lays the same hand that represents power, that right hand, he lays that hand on him and told him, don't be afraid. I am the, I am the first and the last. And just think of that power that he had. The definition of meekness is power under control. We always talk about the horse's bridle or the bit that controls that horse. And if that horse has been controlled, it's a meek horse. This is a picture of gentleness. This is a picture of meekness here. And Lord Jesus said, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Yes, Jesus has all the power. He has all, all the power that we need, but he also has a loving heart that's directing that power. He doesn't want the Apostle John to be afraid. John is terrified. He, he doesn't even want to move. You ever been that afraid when you don't want to move? You're just, I've been in my room at night as a kid, and I hear something in that closet, and I'm telling you, I know that there's a real live monster just waiting there to take me out. If I got up out of my bed to even run to the door, it would catch me before I got to that doorway. And you just don't want to move. You're just paralyzed in fear. That's, that's the picture. John is just paralyzed with this fear, and, and he wants to comfort him. He wants to encourage him. But notice he says, I am the first and the last. How does he comfort John? He comforts John by reminding him who he is. It doesn't even comfort him with what he's going to do or not do. It's all based in who he is. Again, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. I am the first and the last. Everything that you could be afraid of or even think about being afraid of is before the first and the last. And if, I, if, I, if I'm in charge of the beginning and the end, everything in between, you don't even have to be concerned about. You don't have to worry about. And so it's a beautiful comfort to us to know who he is, to be reminded. You know, sometimes we, we have to be reminded about who he is. We know, I mean, if John would have thought about it for very long, I mean, this was his initial reaction to seeing the Lord Jesus in that, in that uh, glorified state there. But if he had much time to think about it, what do I have to be afraid of? I mean, I've been with Jesus for years, in, physically in his public ministry, but also I've, I've fellowshiped with him for all these decades. There's nothing to be afraid of. But he looks at who he is, and he's so impressed and blown away by that, it's like, I'm, I'm going to bow down and worship, uh, and that's a beautiful expression that we see in John now verse 18 he says I am he who lives and was dead and behold I am alive forevermore amen and I have the keys of Hades and death this is clearly there's cults that try to make this not Jesus speaking but when was the father ever dead I mean this has to be the Lord Jesus here he said I am he who lives and was dead and behold and the word behold means to consider carefully to pay attention Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. says amen to his own statement. So that's biblical. And he says, and I have the keys of Hades and death. What does that mean? When you have keys, you have authority over what you have a key of. So if you have the key to your car, you have authority over that car. If you have a key to your house, you have authority over that house. So he's saying, I have authority over Hades and of death. So he's saying, I have authority over, because Hades was a holding place where those that didn't know Christ even today go and wait for the great white throne judgment. He says, I have authority over that. 
I have authority over death. I have authority over all the things that you could possibly be afraid of. And maybe some of us need to hear that. Every, there's, there's nothing we have to be afraid of. The Lord Jesus is, has conquered all of our fears. He's the one that's taken the sting out of death. And, and, and the grave has no victory for us anymore. So if he's conquered that, what else has he conquered in our lives while we're living? Everything. He's given us the victory. Then he says in verse 19, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. We've looked at this already, but he's giving us an outline for the book. He says, write the things. It's the second time he's told him to write something down now. Write the things which you have seen. That's all these things that he's experiencing right now. And the things which are, which he will write down related to chapters 2 and 3. And, then all, and the things that will take place after this. After the, time, the, the things that happen in the present related to the church age and so forth. When those things are finished and the rapture occurs, there's going to be things that occur after that on this earth of which we won't be a part. And he's going to describe that from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 19. You're not going to see the church again after chapter 4 all the way until chapter 19 when we come back physically for that second coming. I think that's time for an amen. There you go. Verse 20 says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So he defines what the stars are, he defines what the lampstands stands are, and he holds those stars, those leaders in his, in his hand, but he walks in the midst of these lampstands. He's in the midst of the church, and that's the thing I really want us to focus on today, especially as we begin to prepare our hearts for communion, because he is in our midst. And you could just go through and think of the implications to that. What does it mean? What does it mean when he um, you know, is the, the, the one that walks through our midst and, and, he, and he ministers to us? It means complete surrender to him. It means, it means that he works in his, in his bride, through his bride, on behalf of his bride, to make our services. And when we serve the Lord and when we're around each other, when we're ministering to one another, he makes it supernatural. It has to be supernatural. He wants it to be supernatural. And, and so we have to be yielded over to him. We have to be sensitive to his leading. We have to be ready to share a word. When he puts, when he puts a word on our hearts to share with someone, to encourage them, we need to obey that voice. When he, when he puts someone on our hearts that we're around, and he says, you know, you need to pray for them. I want you to pray for them right now. And we go over to him and ask him, hey, I don't know what's going on, but what the Lord laid you on my heart to pray for you right now. We need to do that. That's Jesus in our midst leading us to minister to other people in the fellowship. And it's actually him himself doing the ministering through our lives. And so that's what it means. We can get in our, in our uh, kind of the, our ruts and so forth and, and coming and going and not even thinking about ministry. Every time that we're around God's people, we need to be thinking about ministry and how we can serve one another. As we're yielded to his spirit in that way, then he ministers to other people through our lives because he's in our midst and he wants to do that. So that's the, that's the really the strong emphasis that I wanted to look at this morning. He's in our midst. He wants to minister to us. He wants to minister through us. And he ministers through us despite ourselves, in spite of ourselves. He wants to minister through our lives. And so let's be yielded to that. Don't just rush in and rush out. I know sometimes people have to go. You have appointments. I, I get all that. 
But this is the time of ministry. Ministry really includes before the service and after the service. There's just as much ministry going on then as in any time during the time where we have the official start of the service. It's all him working. It's all him wanting to influence others through our lives. And, and when that happens, the church becomes what he wants it to be. Amen? He gets to choose. It's his church. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for how good you've been to us. Thank you, Jesus, that you're in our midst. You are always our guest of honor, Lord, even though we forget sometimes that you're here. Right now, at least, we recognize that you're here. We can't wait to see you face to face. And as a church, we want to honor you by being flexible to your Spirit's direction. We don't want to be just going through the motions, Father. Help us to be sensitive to your Spirit. Help us to function in the way that you would have us function. Thank you that you want to work through our lives. Thank you for the wealth of your people in our midst. Help us to see them as, as those that we're valuing and those that are, uh, we're wealthy because they're in our family, Lord. And so increase our ministry among us as we yield to you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.